Good evening. Welcome to Words on Whiskey. I'm delighted to be back after quite a long absence. And as you see, we've relocated, so there's been some movement going on and some reorganizing, but we're delighted to be back. And I'm particularly glad to have our guest this evening, Mr. Nicholas Morgan, Dr. Nicholas Morgan, in fact. And uh, we'll get into what he's been working with over the last few years. And he's got to bring with us his vast experience of the whiskey industry, over 30 years in the in the whiskey industry. And uh, let's just bring Nick in and uh, get the show going. So, of course, if you have any questions, there's no better man to ask, I think, than Nick. So, Nick, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me, Sergios. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, look, uh, the minute I picked up your book, I, I, I had a good read of it. I was enthralled by what was in it and really... The new book uh, addresses something very interesting and uh, a very broad scope indeed. But tell us a little bit about yourself uh, uh, and how you got into this whiskey business. Well, uh, yeah, I I sort of fell into whiskey by accident um, in a way, as I think many people do, actually. Um, My training was as an academic historian and I'd studied and had a Ph.D., and uh, did a number of research jobs and ended up researching uh, a project researching Scottish businessmen in the 19th and 20th century based at the University of Glasgow. Right. From, from then I managed to get a proper lectureship in Scottish history uh, in Glasgow. And I was doing that when I was approached in 1990 by United Distillers, which was the Spirits part of Guinness PLC, having merged with the distillers company a few years earlier. And they were looking to appoint an archivist um, really to to assemble uh, an archive from from remnants scattered all over the place in London, around England, and particularly obviously in Scotland, really as part of a project to help rebuild the culture of that company, which had taken a bit of a kicking during the um, the, the takeover and then the subsequent um, trial of Ernest Saunders and those people that had been involved with him in the, the share support scheme to boost to boost the Guinness share price when they were when they were doing the takeover. This is the case where he had the illness and then recovered. Well, well, he had the, he, yes, he had the illness just before he went to prison and was released because of it. And yeah. then made a miraculous recovery, as, as it's known. Yeah. So, yeah. so I got this job as archivist, which I did for um, four, four, four years or so, and, and in that time became increasingly involved in marketing projects. Yeah. And in about 1994 um, or 95, I was actually asked to move down to London and, and take on a marketing role. And then when Diageo was formed, which was a couple of years later, when Guinness merged with Grand Metropolitan. All of this, by the way, is in the book, not not my history. But all no, the it's in the book. All right, yeah. Because it's a bit complicated. But when um, when Guinness then merged with Grand Grand Metropolitan, uh, I, I somehow uh, became global marketing director for Single Malt Whiskey in the new business, which was a fantastic opportunity. And I did that for about twelve or fifteen years or more. Yeah. Fantastic. And when you were lecturing in college, and uh, you obviously st- studied the Scottish history, how how, how aware were you, and and, and uh, what was the significance of whiskey on Scottish history? Were you aware of it? There was it something that you came across, or well, I was aware. I was I, I was aware of um, Scotch whiskey. Actually, I mean, my dad drank Scotch at home, right. and um, 
my I'm, I'm married into a, a family from Glasgow, and my um, my my father-in-law's brother had worked as a senior salesperson for the John Begg Company in in Glasgow. So they sort of had whiskey in their blood, right? And of course, when when I was involved in the what what was the Scottish Business Biography Project. Um, the, the great names of, of blended Scotch whiskey, Dewars and Buchanans and Walkers, were very big in that project. And I think also you could see from there how the tentacles of whiskey sort of stretched out more widely from a business perspective. And you could also see, of course, uh, another issue that no one should turn their back on, the, um, you know, the impact that the alcohol abuse had. Sure. Um, on communities, particularly urban communities throughout Scotland in the 19th and early 20th century. I mean, you do mention in the book, and, and the book, for those that uh, aren't aware, is uh, is this here, Everything You Need to Know About Whiskey, uh, but We're Too Afraid to Ask. And there is that, uh, there's two comments really in the title of that book. And I suppose the, the first one is Everything You Need to Know. You do cover the wide range of topics within it, but but the bit about it, you are too afraid to ask. Do you find that there is that level of snobbery in whiskey now is creeping in that you know people are actually afraid to ask questions? Well, I think I think there there are a couple of things there. If you if you want to, if you want to sort of break down the title, yeah. I mean, I think the the everything you need to know bit is um, is not that there's everything about whiskey. Uh, in, in the book, because that, that 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 would be impossible, but it does. We d- we do, did in the book try and cover all the major categories and all of that sort of stuff. But um, the everything you need to know was really the point that you know people have haven't liked to have a really nice view of the industry and they get very romantic about it. There's a lot of misconceptions that people hang on to dearly they cling on you know like like they cling on to a lifeboat and i wanted to sort of pop some of those bubbles and um dispel some of those myths so that's where the this is what you really need to know really part of yeah. the title comes from yeah and the too, too afraid to ask is really i think similar you know people um some some people on the fringes of the industry let's say commentators people on online forums discussion groups on social media like to wear their uh, claimed knowledge and expertise, you know, very, very loudly in, yes. every, in everything they do, and they tend to they tend to just slap down people. I think very often. I'm I'm a guitar player, by the way, and so right. when when all the internet things started happening, it was like there were all these guitar forums. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm a, I'm a Fender guitarist, really. That's the guitars. I like That's your specialty, yeah. And so we would go on this Fender guitar forum and there'd be all these very arcane questions about this, that and everything else. And then someone would post a message saying, I've just bought a Mexican Telecaster and it's really great. What do you think, guys? And immediately the weight of these bulletin boards <laughs> would plow in on this guy, you know, and just excoriate for his naivety and, you know, all of that stuff. And, yeah. and Wolski can be very much like that. And I think that does lead people into a state where they're not really too keen to show that they might not be as expert as the bloke. And it normally is a bloke. It has to be said, yeah. shouting his mouth off somewhere else, you know? Yeah. It's unfortunate, but yeah, it is all put in, especially for, for newcomers coming to it. There's some things I didn't mention there. You're, you're um, credited with the outstanding achievement in Scotch whiskey by the IWSC in 2017. And then 
2018, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, we'll talk about one other thing later on that you're associated with, which is not whiskey related at all, but I found quite interesting. And it kind of comes across in the book that you're of this type of nature. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. But how did it come about that you started the book? Because prior to that, you mentioned that you have written another book. That book is uh, A Long Stride. Um, the book about Johnny Walker. So that was while you were with Diageo. Yeah, so I spent the last, uh, and, and I have to say, I was really privileged to spend the last sort of two and a half, three years of my time at Diageo researching that book, both in the Diageo archives, which are massive, yeah, but also uh, in, in a number of other uh, places. I sort of half lived in the British Library for about two years. Um, so, so I, I wrote that book. It was going to, going to be part of the huge Johnny Walker bicentenary yeah. in, uh, in 2020. Uh, and of course I ended up finishing the manuscript in the first lockdown and the editing process, I think we did in the first lockdown as well. And by the time it came to launch the book, there was really no, bicentenary celebration at all and i mean it's a bit ironic actually because johnny walker celebrated their centenary in in the shadow of a spanish flu uh, yes. global pandemic in 1920 so i hate to think what's going to what's going to happen uh, we, well we won't be around for the next one to worry about so um that's but, one uh, positive but, thing but when i was finishing off the book i got a call from sukinder singh of the whiskey exchange in london yeah. who asked me if I'd like to go and speak to him about a project. And um, they had been um, approached by Ebury, who are an imprint of Penguin Random House, yeah. about the possibility of jointly being involved in the publication of a, of a sort of general book about whiskey, mm -hmm. which they were keen to do. And um, Ebury left it up to them to find the author. And um, I was very lucky that Sukinder asked me if I would do it. I spoke spoke to him, explained what I'd like to write about, which he, he seemed to be, broadly speaking, aligned with. And then I went and spoke to the publishers, and they were really happy with it. So I wrote a, a very brief proposal, which I think is the... Is the um, is the paragraph on the back of the book? Actually, that was, that was the <laughs> all right. Okay, with. and um, and then we just took it from there. And uh, I, I suppose I started by that time. I was down to about three days a week with Diageo, so um, or I thought I was. It didn't quite work out like that. Yeah. But I really started, I suppose, at the end of 2020 and wrote, wrote the book really quickly. I mean, it was written in about six months or so, seven months. Like I said, it, it, it's a it's a fantastic read and. And as Kinder said, and I think as you say in the book as well, it's it's written for the the whiskey lover as well, and uh, to share the different topics, if you like. So the topics that you go through is uh, so how whiskey is made. Uh, so that's again, you it's technical, but it's not drooling in in uh, jargon, and and it's very yeah. straightforward and very concise and. And actually, I learned quite a bit of uh, new terminology that I hadn't come across before, like draft has uh, been the the results of the the spent milling, and uh, then there's part on whiskey and wood. I, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but whiskey and freedom I thought was interesting on how you consume whiskey. Then you talk about uh, collecting, which has become a huge topic lately, and certainly yeah, whenever we put something on. 
collecting it, its it's it's, it's hard it's it's hard to write a book in conjunction with Sukinder Singh without having a chapter on collecting. Although, though I think he was a bit shocked when when he read the opening part of that chapter. Well, but, um, yeah, seven thousand bottles he has is yeah, what yeah. you put in the the business of whiskey. I, I, and again, the, the business of whiskey is something that's often shied away from. You know, we forget quite often that whiskey is a is a business and. You know, I suppose at the end of the day, one of the foremost things is, is to actually make a profit and, and still exist. So um, whiskey experts, whiskey expertise, people in whiskey, people, um, whiskey and culture, a huge range of topics there that you do cover. Is there, um, was it difficult to narrow down, if you like, and you haven't narrowed it down by much, the, the range of topics that are, that are covered within uh, one publication. I mean, it was quite so. So when I when I wrote a more extensive proposal and you know chapter headings, um, I, I had about I can't exactly remember, but I think I had at least four more chapters, which right. um, it became quite. I mean, I, I wrote more than and, and, and we published more than I was supposed to, um, mm-hmm. but it became apparent that I would have to cut stuff out. So. Some elements got um, mixed in with other chapters. Yeah. Uh, prob- probably in, in a more um, abridged fashion than I would have liked. Yeah. And then some bits sort of got left out altogether, um, which was a shame. But I think, you know, the book's supposed to serve two purposes. I think for someone who is just interested in whiskey and doesn't know a lot about it. Yeah. I think actually it works very well as an introduction to the broadest canvas, you know, on which you can you can see the industry painted, yeah. and um, and that's why, for example, that chapter on how you make whiskey, which, as it turned out, was the hardest one to write, which I yeah. hadn't anticipated, um, is is it quite matter of fact? You know, I try to keep it really simple, but also have some technical stuff in there because. I want it to be interesting to people who know a lot or think they know a lot about whiskey. So I, I defy anyone to read the book and not say they le- they've learned something at the end. Of it. Oh no! Well, look, I I learned an awful lot, but it's not just that I, I learned a lot. It was nicely put in place. So um, obviously, as a historian, you would have written a lot of paper and done a lot of research as a historian. Um, but actually, putting that into a concise book is is a different skill set. I, I would feel rather than just purely historian. And you've done it beautifully. And like I mentioned before, I think you've done it very poetically. But um, there are some points that I, I've highlighted in the book, and I think they're relevant in today's dynamic whiskey market, both here and in Scotland. So I thought of a lot of what you mentioned about Scotch very much applies to what's happening here and of course mm-hmm. you know so many new distilleries coming up and one of the things then that was uh, that was interesting is uh, it's not just commentators and enthusiasts who rail against the regulations commercial interests particularly from those who wish to bring products to the market quickly are often compromised by rules on maturation minimum age and the addition of flavoring leading to some to campaign volubly against them conceding their financial imperatives under the cloak of campaigning for freedom. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there is, um, well, I think we talked about it earlier, with so many new distilleries coming on board and them wanting to stand out, you know, and the, and the financial pressure of not 
necessarily been able to wait for 10 years to release their own. There is all this um, dynamic movement against trying to, against the regulations and trying to stir the industry up. Where do we draw the line as to when whiskey no longer becomes recognizable as what it has been? And, or is it something that just should continuously evolve anyway? Well, so that, that's a really interesting question. And um, I, I'll, I'll step back a little bit and then I'll try and end up on, on that, that point, which is one that's, I think, all around distinctiveness, yes. if, if you will. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, the situation that we have now, if you'd, if you'd have asked anyone, if I had have asked anyone when I joined the Scotch whiskey industry in 1990 to describe what the industry would be like um, in 30 years' time, let alone describe what Irish whiskey, which was dead in the water, or bourbon whiskey, which was dead in the water, or Japanese whiskey, which no one really knew about, or Canadian whiskey, which was dead in the water, really, as far as anyone was concerned. If you'd have asked them to just paint you a picture of 2020 or 2022, no one, no one would have described what we've got now. What we have now is unthinkable. And I read something yesterday in a uh, discus, the American sort of regulator body in, in their annual report, that 10 or 15 years ago, there were 50 distilleries in the United States, and now there are 2,000. That's right. Yeah. It's nuts. (laughs) So, you know, so so it's everywhere, you know, this proliferation of of distilleries. Now, there are a few, and I do talk about this in the book. I try and categorize these new distilleries, and there are a few which are simply enthusiasts. They're simply enthusiasts who want to try and make whiskey uh, and really are not motivated motivated by any commercial intent. Um, and, I, and I suppose one you might think of, in, in if you think of Scotland, certainly would be the guys at Daft Mill. Yes. Um, who, who I did, and I did hear the guy that owns Daft Mill saying, if, I, if I'd known what I know now, We'd have never, we'd have never have done this, you know. I mean, they did wait ten years, didn't they? They yeah. waited ten years. I was at a dinner. Well, I can't tell you where, really. But I was at a dinner, and we happened to be put at the same table. And there was someone there who was desperate. They don't even go yeah. for about two years. Was desperate to get casks off them, and they would just go, oh, oh. no, just not selling anything, you know. And, and yeah. credit to them, I thought that was brilliant. But yeah. but most most of these new guys, wherever you are. Um, are not in that situation, and although although they like to portray themselves as enthusiasts and a little bit hippie, and it's all great, we love whiskey, it's very romantic, and you know, all of this stuff, most of them have got fierce professional investors behind them. Yeah, you don't you don't build distilleries for nothing. You have to have um, money to do that and, and to equip a distillery properly. So they've got huge pressure on them to um, deliver something back to investors as quickly as they can. And, of course, many, in Scotland at least, um, had the benefits of um, advice from people like the late Dr. Jim Swan, who knew how to set up a distillery so that its whiskey would be quite nice when it was, say, three or four years old. Quite nice when it was three or four years old, you know. So now you have the situation where you've got quite a lot of distilleries who are actually producing whiskey that's more or less the same, 
and they're desperate to sell it. It's quite nice. And they're desperate to sell it at three yeah. or four years old. So they've got to they've got to find something to say about it that's different. You know, they've got to find space amongst all this noise that's coming out that makes yeah. it different and somehow makes it better than a Glenfiddich or a Glenlivet, you know, the big competitors that are out there and are very well-established. So they're trying to find all these niche positions, but increasingly the positions are so niche that they're yeah. pretty hard to understand. You know, at the end of the day, if you try and pull apart what they're saying, is sort of not much there, you know. I think yeah. you, you used the phrase earlier, I think, smoke and mirrors. Well, there's a, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. But, you know, what people have done is turn orthodoxy on its head because some whiskey enthusiasts, at least, seem to be very happy to spend £50 or sometimes much more on a sort of 50cl bottle of three-year-old very nice whiskey. Yeah. Um, now, some, I suppose, are sort of uh, collectors or they think it's going to be worth more in a few years' time, all of that stuff. But really, that that's... Uh, <laughs> You know, that, that's something that people wouldn't have imagined 30 years ago, for, for sure, when we were all worried about the 10, 12-year-old. Yeah. Whiskey. How much of it is driven then by collectors wanting to jump on the next big thing? Well, I think so. I think some of it is. So if you take Darth Mill, for example, who've released very small batches now that they've got 10-year-old plus whiskey, and I think it's only available by ballot. Yes. You know, uh, and you can be sure that people um, are buying those on the assumption that current global interest rates are not going to change and that the so-called investment market for Scotch whiskey will still be here in 5, 10, 15 years' time when they can sell these things and maybe make, make a bit of money on them. But there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of assumptions in there which I wouldn't necessarily share, you know? Yeah. Well, funny enough, uh, referring to this kind of subject, there was one quote again I, I picked up on them. Um, for all the tired cliches that unimaginative PR companies like to throw at us about new distilleries being founded by inspired men and women determined only to make the best possible spirit, turning their backs on big careers to pursue a single-minded mission inspired by flavor, the truth of the matter always lies in the loop. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, it's about the money. It's about yeah. the money, you know. And I'm not saying they're not trying to make whiskey of great flavour, by the way. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they are. Are you know? I've got yeah. a lot of respect for these people, but you, you know, it's this thing that 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 consumers very often lose sight of reality, yeah. or they only have a, a a selective view of reality. So they'll criticise a huge company yeah. like my former employers, Diageo. You know, the, who we're going to kick today? Well, we always kick Diageo, so we'll kick them a bit more. So yeah. Diageo can be criticized for being profit-focused and only worried about investors. But believe me, the guys at Lindor's are as worried about their Russian investors as Diageo are worried about their investors, you know? Yeah, well, so, I think the incumbent and the, and the large – not the incumbent, but the larger players are always e an easy, soft target, I think. And coconut shy, coconut shy, don't tell me. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, well, I you would have seen a lot of it, yes. yeah. But uh, the other thing is that – there. And I don't know if it's an English and an Irish thing and maybe less of a U.S. thing. Is that is there almost a shame in wanting to make a profit off your off something that you're passionate about? You know, uh, I, I'm wondering, is there something in the psyche there that, you know, there's a stigma attached with wanting to be a profitable company? Well, I suppose the um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting cultural point. I mean, I suppose the, the profit-driven business person is more, one would recognize as being more of an American phenomenon than and particularly United States phenomenon than yeah. something that you find in Europe. But I mean, there are a lot. There are lots of business, wealthy business people in Europe, in Ireland, in England, and Scotland. And of course, ironically, many of these wealthy business people are the one who are buying all the whiskey. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not as if they don't know about making money, they've got to make it somewhere to pay the crazy prices they are for some of these uh, limited editions and things. Yeah, well, that's another topic. Then, uh, when we come to wanting to stand out, the amount of limit. I mean. McCallum, I suppose, were the the poor brothers are coming out with limited editions, where they really cornered that market, I, I guess, initially. Um, but when everybody's doing limited editions, where does the the ordinary liquid come? If you like, you know, what stands out? Well, if we if we just talk about Scotch specifically for a moment, Sergio, yeah. because that's. That's my sort of area of, of, of greater knowledge, and it's also I, I enjoy drinking Scotch more than I would Irish or American. I mean, I have Irish and American whiskey, but I'm a sort of Scotch guy. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm just puzzled about is that people seem to pay so little attention to the great, great whiskies that are on the shelf and are still available for. 30, 40, 50 pounds. I mean, I'm, I'm a sort of peaty whiskey guy. So Ardbeg and Lafroy and Lagavulin, although that's about to take a price hike, I think. Yeah. And, and Kalila and these sort of brands. And, and they're almost, you know, the 10 years old, the 16 Lagavulin and stuff like that. And they're almost ignored these days because everyone's going after these so called limited editions, which often are not particularly limited in terms of quantity. Yeah. And certainly, frankly, uh, uh, very often are not great in terms of match the taste testing against some of these great standard whiskies, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's 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 an odd market. And I think it's it's really um it's in danger of sort of eating itself if it's not if it's not careful. I mean, yes. I, I, you know, limited edition, actually, even though I did a lot of limited editions when I was at the Edge, although I think pretty good ones. I mean, I did all the Diageo special releases and that was Port yeah, Allen's Aurora. I mean, we did some serious, uh, serious whiskies there. But yeah. normally when I think of limited editions, I think of um, when I was a teenager and having aunts who would have copies of the Radio Times uh, or the, the Sunday Express or something like that. Now, the back of these newspapers and magazines, there are all these pages full of limited editions of ceramic plates and oh, yes. anniversary yeah. this and all of that sort of stuff. Penny blocks. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think you know, whiskey is in danger of getting itself into that same territory and, and, and devaluing the whole category through this stuff, actually. Yeah. You know. yeah. I, I, I kind of – I'm seeing a, uh, a backlash now almost against these limited editions and – a lot of the single cask releases and you, that you see, they're not sufficient to prop up a business indefinitely. And you see companies and distilleries that have been, especially at the beginning, you know, just creating single cask releases, limited editions, and then coming to the realization that actually they need a core product. They need an anchor to build the brand Absolutely. on. 
And, and you're starting to see a lot more of that happen now. So they start off maybe at the specialization and then diversify and, and create a mainstay product, an anchor core, product. Core, core, core brands is where, where your business is. I mean, you may, you know, you may be able to, um, as the marketeers would say, premiumize your consumer to buy instead of a 10-year-old, an 18-year-old, and then maybe a, a limited something. You may be able to do a bit of that. But you've always got to have something for consumers to go back to. Yeah. And I think certainly, um, you know, those core brands become really important in times of difficulty, in times of stress, in times of economic hardship. And suddenly people don't have the same amount of money that they used to have to to lavish on some of these more indulgent purchases. Yeah. So, um, so as in... In the UK, apparently, we're heading into a time of, of um, you know, strained uh, expenditure from, for many households through energy prices and interest rates and stuff. Uh, likewise that. here, yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think that's that's when the good old, you know, Powers uh, 12-year-old or um, Talisker 10-year-old would come back into their own, really, you know? Yeah, I think uh, we forget, I think, that those are – they're successful products for a reason. They're not just by fluke that those products are successful, you know. Oh, and this sometimes uh, people look down on those products, which is which is a bit of a shame. But a, a couple of questions here. I've got uh, one from with the with the name Dis up here, which we'll say nothing about. But he just has a general question here about Scotch's shipping just to Canada. I don't know if you can answer that or not. Well, what, 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 what I do know at the moment is that um, the pandemic um, has caused a lot of difficulty for Scotch whiskey producers just in terms of regularly running their, their business. You know, um, obviously, when we've had lockdowns and social enforced social distancing, it's been much harder to do the things that they would normally do. Also in the UK, there's been this spate of um, absences because people have been isolating um, with COVID. And that's disrupted everything, not just sort of tight into the industry, but also through the supply chain. So if you ask anyone at the moment, they'll tell you, I can't get bottles, I can't get glass, I can't get cork, I can't get labels, you know, so I can't get cardboard boxes. So it's it's a difficult time, and I'm, I'm very much aware um that there are a, quite a lot of brands out there if you if you look at the whiskey exchange for example that the outer stocks you know are incredible at the moment you know just yeah incredible. well actually there's another question and another point from laurie here good evening laurie thank you for joining us laurie from whiskey chats uh so we, we talked about the the core releases now from uh different companies starting to emerge so uh, laurie mentions the new dingle release and i think ectonville came out with a a core the 1808 as well to kind of be the the mainstay if you like of, of the releases but uh yeah it's it's a there's there is a lot of strain we were talking with Laurie and we were mentioning that um you know the the redbreast 21 very difficult to find now it's almost sold out everywhere and that's literally a supply issue and, and having spoken to producers getting bottles getting corks getting packaging even yeah. It's just proving very difficult. So, yeah. look, uh, I'm assuming that will clear up before the not too distant future. Yeah, I think I think that's it. I mean, as as, as we see, 
the pandemic receding, which it certainly seems to be at the moment, so all of that will ease. But it'll take a few months um, to work its way through the system. Of course, of course, we we've got Brexit as well, which you, you have know. on top of everything. Yeah, yeah. Let's, not, let's not talk any more about that. But we just have it, and you have to live with that. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that did cause issues up north for us as well, the Brexit, um, and uh, I think. Thanks to the work of the uh, Irish Whiskey Association and working with the Scotch Whiskey Association, that's been put to bed. But uh, one of the other questions I wanted to ask, um, the skills that you've taken from a, from being a historian to going to writing a book and then also having worked on the marketing side within Diageo, uh, I won't say there's a little bit of cynicism in there, but there's a little bit of cynicism in the book about marketing speak how do you do that in a uh, in an unbiased manner unbiased manner um i, I mean whiskey in ireland in scotland in canada the united states japan has been built by marketing yeah now um, it's, you know, and it's interesting actually, because one, one of the things that people often talk about, I hear people talk about as well, what was it that happened to Irish whiskey in the 19th century? You know, and I hear a lot, lot, I've read lots of sort of stuff, people talking about things, but, but one thing is for sure, Scotch whiskey marketing was much better than Irish whiskey marketing. Yeah. It was just so much better. People like Hiram Walker uh, in the 19th century have brilliant marketing. So marketing has always been there. And with, with, with marketing, again, it goes back to the phrase used earlier, there's always a bit of smoke and mirrors because that's what marketing um, is all about. But I think there are, there are times when um, people create constructs mm-hmm. which are quite emotional um, quite profound constructs, if you will, which are quite emotional, quite engaging for people, but actually they are just constructs, and they're there as part of the marketing platform of the company. So one you might think about at the moment that that, that I can't see lasting for much longer is sustainability. So yeah. in in the book, I wrote, I think I wrote, and it did stay in through the edit. Um, Something like good heavens! I'm sure there's even going to be a prize for the most sustainable distillery. You know, oh, sure. there is. Well, there, there is are prizes. There are. Yeah, being printed that that had already happened. But you yeah. know, if you think about sustainability, everyone's doing sustainability. Yeah. There's no one. That is, it's it's hygiene. Yeah. The, the, the news around sustainability is if you're not doing it. So when I see people putting out press releases going the most sustainable that or the most sustainable this or we planted a forest it's like come on guys every it's just it's puff you know yeah you know everyone is doing it so so how can that be a point of marketing difference anymore and that gets us back to the thing you you said earlier about everyone wants to have a point of difference but in fact within whiskey according to the regulations in different markets, different producing countries, there's a limit to the number of points of difference you can have. Yes. You know, yeah. there's a regulatory limit. And, and honestly, if I see another cask finish from some, you know, whiskey's been in one cask, then in another, then we put it in another, then we put it in the, you know, it's like it used to be with vodka. 
double double filtered, no triple filtered, no quadruple filtered. You know, well, it kind of reminds me of the uh, the razor blades with Gillette, where they start off with double razors, and they're now I think they're up to five blades now or six. Yeah, yeah. But, but eventually they'll run out of space. And um, yeah. but one one point I I did want to ask about marketing, and and you will have a great view of this. Um, it's a bit like the Paul Weller song, I suppose. Is that the public gets what the public wants, or, or the public wants what the public gets? You know, what way around is it? What what's driving what? Well, if you that, that's an interesting question, and if you, um, I'm going to talk about Scotch again spe- specifically, or, or, although in a sense Irish whiskey comes into this one as well. If you think about the rise of blended Scotch whiskey. Uh, from the eight, really from the eighty, and people say the mid nineteenth century, but really it's the eighteen seventies is when it yeah. all starts happening. Um, that was all about giving consumers a palatable and enjoyable spirit drink. Okay, yeah. and 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 that's what the Scotch whiskey blenders, in particular, succeeded in doing. And this was at a time when people couldn't drink um, or, or it was harder to drink good brandy and cognac yeah. because of the phylloxera problems. Irish whiskies had fallen out of favor. And very often in, in England, people say in London, if you went into a pub, even if you saw your Irish whiskey coming out of a branded bottle, it was more likely to have come from Hamburg than it was from Dublin or even Belfast. Yeah. You know, so so the the blending thing, Scotch whiskey became famous because it gave consumers what they wanted. You know, and and, yeah. and increasingly, um, middle class consumers with disposable income um, who wanted to drink actually at home, they wouldn't go out necessarily drink out outdoors. Not quite respectable yet, but um, drinking at home was was the big thing for the for these big brands. Yeah. And I think today whiskey has has continued to move in that direction. So you get you, you get a lot of people, the real enthusiasts, yeah. who will say whiskey isn't as good as it was uh, twenty years ago, or thirty years ago, or forty years ago, or fifty years ago. You know, yes. whiskey is not as good as it was uh, then. Well, of course, whiskey has changed. All whiskies have changed in character over. 50, 100 years um, for a whole variety of reasons, not through any maliciousness on the part of producers. I mean, it's just changed. One of the changes, it seems to me, is amongst the the broad generality of consumers, not being rude about the broad generality, but amongst the broad generality of consumers, there's a trend towards less challenging flavors. Amongst the experts, amongst the cognoscenti, as they would like to call themselves, it's all about challenging flavors. It's all about give me the next hundred phenolic, you know, brute laddie that's going to, you know, take my throat away. But but most drinkers don't want that. And in fact, as we know, a lot of people now want lower alcohol drinks. Uh, A lot of people now want drinks that are more mixable, more versatile. And I think a lot of the Scotch whiskies that you're seeing, particularly a lot of the blends that are coming, new blends that are coming out now, are very much aimed at giving consumers exactly what they want. 
some whiskey enthusiasts hate that. <laughs> you know, they really no, no. And you mention it. it in the book, actually, yeah. which, uh, in a couple of places, like uh, you know, enthusiasts looking for the most uh, phenolic content in a bottle, or and and here we had we have this, um, and I'm sure it's happening in Scotland, and certainly, you know. Pre-war, certainly whiskey was consumed above fifty percent ABV, and now it's forty percent. But there is a movement now this this cast strength movement, in which people want cast strength. Uh, and it, it, you refer to it in the book as people searching for the hottest curry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and a kind of a machoism about being able to take the most phenol content and the most. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I mean, that's not something that the general consumer. Is looking for these days. But even even amongst the even amongst the people that are really engaged with with um, whether it's Irish whiskey or Scotch, whatever it might be, the, the, the curry the curry thing is quite important because I think when people come in to whiskey, Scotch whiskey, yeah. let's say, and they're often proselytized. I mean, it's like they're coming into a new church. You know, they're full of enthusiasm, so yeah. they go for the extremes. Yeah. Go for so it's got to be the you know the odd bags and all of this sort of stuff. And as they learn a bit more, they realise actually that there's a lot to be said for these beautiful um, Highland Speyside whiskies that have got a lot of subtlety, a lot of character, different yeah. parts of the flavour map that takes a bit of time to actually understand about being in a glass. Yeah. And I think that's the same with Indian food because you, you do the vindaloos for a while and then eventually you start yeah. eating southern Indian food because it's so delicious and light, you know, and appetising. Yeah. So that the, the the curry analogy goes quite a long way, I think. Yeah, you talked about the uh, the blending there, and I suppose blending got a good boost. I suppose when the the tax breaks, if you like, came, I think it was nineteen oh nine. You know, in, in the people's budget, where you know it became more affordable for uh, blends. No, 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 your history's wrong there. The people's budget nearly killed Scotch. <laughs> was it the people's budget nearly? It was the wrong way around. Yeah. yeah, the tax breaks were earlier. That was sort of 1860. Um, oh, is that when it that. killed it? Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. But the one thing then um, that I found interesting was that you consider, and you mentioned um, blending as being the democratization of, of whiskey. Could you just expand on that a little bit more? Well, it was it was it was it was blending that brought whiskey to the people. It was blending. I mean, I suppose it's not a word I would like to use, but in a sense, you could say it commoditized Scotch whiskey. Yeah. Um, it 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 was something that that made whiskey more available, more accessible, uh, more enjoyable, and more affordable. All yeah. of the, all of those things. Without blending um, uh, either with Scotch whiskey or with Irish whiskey, and I know in Ireland blending was a bit of a, a bit of a contentious point between the, sure. the Dublin pot still distillers and, and and the Northern Irish guys, particularly. But certainly for Scotch whiskey, it, it, blending was the thing that not only democratised Scotch, but it took Scotch to the world. You know, yeah. Scotch you mentioned whiskey. there the North uh, about, uh, I mean, the, their uptake of uh, grain whiskey and blends was much stronger. And, of course, they shipped whiskey to the to Scotland, allegedly, for for a while as well, before it was uh, outlawed. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of murky, m- murky stuff uh, in, in the 19th, well, uh, uh, up until the 1930s, actually. Yeah. So you had... Um, 
So you, you've got sort of different seg- segments of the market. You have what you call the proprietary bottlers. So you've got Powers, Jameson, yes. uh, Walker and Buchanan's, um, Hiram Walker from Canada. These are all really big proprietary brands by the late 19th century. Um, guaranteed quality, unless yes. it's adulterated or a counterfeit, which was a problem that all of those brands suffered massively in the sure. 19th century. Um, but then you have tap whiskey, tap whiskey that you're going to go and buy in a pub or a bar. Yeah. And it, and in those instances, you were going into no man's land. You know, you really did not know what you were getting. And it was very common, for example, as I said earlier, um, certainly from what I've read in the trade press, who were talking about this all the time, for Irish whiskey in London to be um, what they call Hamburg spirit. So this is spirit from Germany maybe mixed with some Irish whiskey or maybe mixed with some Scotch whiskey and called Irish whiskey. Yeah. Some some blenders in London and in Scotland put Irish whiskey with Scotch whiskey and called it Scott blended Scotch whiskey. Right. And that, that went on until the 1930s when it was when it finally was outlawed uh, after a test case that the DCL um, had brought about. So so quite knowing what you were getting you know, and uh, even even with a proprietary brand, sometimes could be quite quite difficult. You know, yeah. It's a bit of a jungle. I mean, that's something that uh, bottling certainly brought in was, I suppose, a little bit more of uh, understanding where your whiskey came from. It certainly did, and I think if you if you look at some of these lovely old bottles um, and 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 just look at the closures and stuff, I mean, the, these people were really clever. They were they were on the case of counterfeiters and adulterers from the moment they started putting things in bottles, you know. So although these packs look really ornate and you might think they're just there to be ornate, there's very often a very commercial reason for some of the things on the packs, you know. Yeah. And, of course, labelling back then was a much more expensive affair as well. So to counterfeit something wasn't, uh, you know, you weren't going to print off a label on your desk jet printer at home uh, and, and get away with it. Well, but but some of the some of the accounts of counterfeiting cases I've heard, the, the even the brand owners would say you you just couldn't tell the difference. And very right. often, of course, it was the same people that were producing the labels. Of course, yeah, brands that were producing the counterfeit labels. Well, I mean, even the molds of the bottles were yeah. used uh, were used again, and uh, you'd see a bit of that. We uh, have one quote in here: "Blending not only democratized Scotch, it also democratized expertise and connoisseurship." It lowered the bar. Unlike single malls, blend scotch are easier to acquire a taste for and generally kinder to a moderately critical palate. Um, yeah. The other thing that we can't forget is a lot of the single malls that we get to enjoy today are only for the fact that they have a market to sell on their single malt to produce blends for others. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's the base of and which, I mean, Glengoyne is a classic example of sublime to Shebas and it's um, it, 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 it's a point that seems to really irritate some people, which I've made for many years. Actually, you know, if you want to thank someone for having um, Lagavulin or McAllen or Glenlivet or Glenfiddich, you have to thank the blenders. Yeah, because yeah. the blenders are the people that have kept those distilleries open, and actually, they've also dictated the style of whiskey that those distilleries make as well. And, sure. and that's the blenders responding to that changing public taste. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so 
blend in terms of how whiskey companies work. Um, you know, it used to be that everyone talked about the master distiller and all of that stuff. Although very often now, all they do is sign health and safety permits. You know, yeah. But the people, the people that are really critical in that whole sort of flowchart of what decision making and everything in in the whiskey world are the blenders. Yeah, they're top of the tree, absolutely top of the tree. Yeah, I love that bit in the book where you mentioned, you know, the misty-eyed whiskey uh, uh, expert or enthusiast kind of taken in by the Svengali of the of the master distiller, whereas, you know, it's really the operators that will be doing those roles. And you certainly elevate the position of the blender to be, I think you give huge praise to, to the blender and also to the coopers. Yeah, well, so just one more point on the blenders, of course, the majority of single malts are blends. Of course, yeah. You know, just every, from a every, single place. <laughs> every, every, everything is is almost everything is blended. Yeah. And uh, you know, so even when 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 you're drinking your your Glen Glenlivet twelve year old or whatever it might be, you've got to thank a blender for that as much as you have uh, a blender for um, for Grant Stanfast or Johnny Walker Black Label. So blenders yeah. are just everywhere in the. Uh, in 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 the in the production of whiskey, and the Coopers, um, you know, I spent a lot of time when I was in Diageo with our Coopers and with our Coppersmiths. Yes, and uh, the, these are both, um, I think, underestimated crafts. And you know, when when people talk about whiskey being a craft, and sometimes they go, "Well, if if you're a big company, you can't be. Uh, there's no craft in that." Well, of course there is, because there's craft in the stills, there's craft in the coopering and there's as much craft in 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 the whiskey making and blending but you know i i just think that that those casks that whiskey might sit in um well apparently we learned today for 81 years uh, as i've read someone's just released oh really who was that 80, uh, mccallan have released an 81 year old oh uh, is this the one with the hands under the bottom yeah, the i think it's like world cup trophy or something yes yeah um yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to comment on that. But, you know, it's the, the Coopers have the longest lasting influence on on the spirit. And, of course, the longer the spirit is in the cask, the more the wood is going to determine its its final character, even if it's not a particularly active cask. Yeah. So I, I know that in Diageo, the Coppersmiths and Coopers would always argue about who was most important. But I think... I think at the end of the day, with, with, and I apologise to my former coppersmithing colleagues, I think the Coopers sort of get it, you know. Yeah. Hey, when you go back to production, one of the things that uh, I found brave enough to say, I found you brave enough to say was, you know, that uh, the flavour really begins uh, at the fermentation stage. And, you know, all this uh, talk of, you know, the water coming from a spring source and, uh the barrel's been matured in um, on cliffs somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you know, and seawater splashing and everything. You believe that their their influence is quite minimal compared to the influence of, of the wood and also the influence of the of the stills, the copper itself, the shape and style. Yeah, well, you know, you have two things really. Just again, just trying to keep this at a really simple level. You've got you've got what what's what's now sort of generally called i think the distillery character so that's the style of the whiskey that each distillery produces mm -hmm. and the most important thing or the two most important things in that or th most say three most important things fermentation regime yeah short fermentation versus long fermentation not good versus bad or bad versus good 
Short fermentations produce one style of whiskey, sort of nutty, spicy. Yeah. The longer the fermentation, the more fruity, interesting flavors you're going to going to get. Yeah. So fermentation is absolutely um, critical. And there's also an interesting question around yeast, because most distillers use brewer's, brewer's yeast. Yeah. Um, but in most um, tun rooms in distilleries, um, there'll be wild yeasts as well. Yes, of course. Yeah. So there's something odd going on there about a particular location of a distillery and the tun room. Something's happening there that, that's going to be unique to that place. So you've got a fermentation. You've then got your distillation regime, one, two, three, maybe um, distillations. You've got the shape of the still. So you've got all of that um, being really important. And then you've got how you condense the whiskey. So if you've got, uh, in Scotland, conventional shell and tube condensers, yeah. that's going to give you a lot of copper exposure to the spirit, and that will give you a cleaner, lighter spirit. If you've got worm tubs, and I yeah. was always very proud that Diageo had 11 worm tub distilleries, you know, which produce right. wonderful, wonderful whiskies. They're heavier. At new make style, they're going to be quite sulfury sometimes because they haven't had all of that copper um, sure. process going on. And they produce these really meaty styles of whiskey, like Mortlach is probably the most famous within the Diageo um, regime. Yeah. So you've got all of those things going on. Water, that's not really going to pay, uh, make any difference. Um, grain varieties, well, I don't really think so. You've got a fundamental maltiness, obviously, ab about the new make spirit that's going to carry through into the um, into the mature spirit. But does mm. does one grain variety of barley give you a different taste? Well, frankly, I don't really believe that's true. Certainly not once the whiskey is old enough to be drunk as whiskey. It may make an impact when it's one or two years old, but by the time it's got to three or four years in the cask, any of that stuff's going to going to have gone. That's another reason why some people, of course, want you to drink really young whiskey. Because yes. it, it supports the argument around what, what some people like to call terroir. And I'm not going to get into that point, but that's that's enough, just enough of that, you know. Yeah. So so well, those those are the really important things in, in distillation and, and and they're the things that count and they're the things that distillers really pay their attention to, in addition to of course the wood which comes along afterwards. Yeah. Well, what do you make of the uh, all this well I think you you kind of made it clear that uh you're not too impressed with all these different finishes that are coming around. But in terms of that development, has that been exhausted in terms of uh, what can be done with finishing? Well, you would have you would you would have hoped so. I mean, it's a it's an interesting thing. Finishing, or uh, as, as it used to be called, re-racking. Right, yeah. very common practice in the industry. And what, uh, which is that whiskey maybe hasn't turned out quite as you wanted it to, so you put it in a different cask. Yeah. Um, what what um, William Grants and Glenn Morangi in particular did, which was genius, was that they took re-racking re out of the warehouse and put it on the shelf and said, yeah. no, these are finished whiskies, you know. Yeah. So they declared exactly what they were doing, and it was a way of expanding their portfolio, getting more bottles on the shelf, Balvini Portwood, the Glenn Morangi finishes. And that was great, you know, and and – I think in those early years, um, some really nice whiskies were being produced. But it's just got to the stage now where it's a bewildering variety of casks with increasingly 
absurd claims made about what the cask is going to do to the whiskey, and 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 I think claims that must must rub pretty tight against the Scotch whiskey regulations as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got tighter regulations around the wood that you can use, and yeah, and, yeah. and I think um, you can't use seeded fruit. You can't have health seeded. Uh, Fruit before fruit, fruit, fruit drinks, I think yeah. I think uh, tequila's just been allowed, has it? Uh, tequila apparently has has been allowed. It's it's um it's funny because the SWA always used to talk about traditional practice. Yeah, the, so well, that's the, what I was thinking myself, <laughs> but I didn't. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I have to know. I don't. The, the first mention of tequila that I could find in the UK is from the early nineteen twenties when Harry Craddock, who had come across to London during Prohibition, at the start of Prohibition. <laughs> To the Savoy had had tequila at the Savoy, and everyone was quite astonished at seeing this drink they'd never heard of before. So, how that is a traditional practice, I don't know. But um, yeah, and and I think also it just to the point that we mentioned earlier, all of this stuff just erodes at the distinctiveness of the product. And yeah. the thing, you know, the thing that that made Scotch whiskey famous ultimately, and made Irish whiskey famous and bourbon famous and Japanese whiskey famous was simply that. It was whiskey from Scotland. It was Scotch whiskey. It had a thing about it that everyone knew and understood. And the more you sort of appropriate things from other categories to try and differentiate your product, the more you're chipping away at that distinctiveness. Yeah. And you lose that distinctiveness. I mean, that is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. No, and I, I tend to agree. But then uh, then I get accused of sometimes of being a traditionalist, you know, and not wanting to be innovative or, you know. Uh, but the at Scotch some point. Whiskey, Scotch whiskey regulations, the yeah. strictest in the world, yeah. have huge opportunities for innovation, for real innovation. But most companies don't want to innovate. They just want to turn a new product around really quickly. So that's yeah. why they'll do another cask finish, because you can do it in a year, you know? Yeah. In fact, you can do it in less than a year if you really want to. Yeah. Um, and, and, that, and so that's get back to the money, you know? Get back to the money. It's a commercial imperative. You can go yeah. away and make use different grains in Scotland to, to make really interesting spirits, as has been done recently by... A couple of people, including Johnny Walker, with with rye whiskey, single grain almond as well. Yeah, yeah, made 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 from rye. You know, made from different cereals. But it takes time. Yeah, and if you've got investors breathing down your neck, you haven't got that time. Can I ask you, having having worked on the Johnny Walker book and obviously been in India, what do you think is it that's um, led to the success of Johnny Walker? The Hmm. huge universal appeal of Johnny Walker. Um. Let, let, let me tell you, uh, and I'll, I'll use a prop, if if I if I may. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a slanted, a distinctive slanted label. It's a man with a funny hat, right. and it's the fact that as as the brand promised from um, very early in the twentieth century, um, I can't I can't remember actually what the what the phrase is. It's on here. Same quality throughout the world. All right. Okay. That's yeah. the pro- and it's a promise. It's a promise that they delivered on. 
Yeah. So is it the same? Uh, so for the Asian market, it's the same product as it would be from in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. If you have uh, Johnny, your Johnny Walker Black Label in in um, in Shanghai or Beijing, it's going to be exactly the same as it would be in um, in Berlin um, or in London or New York. Exactly the yeah. same. When it comes to flavor and it comes to to blends versus malts, is there a, is there a snob factor there um, that has justified? Well, I think there are probably some some blended scotches, some cheaper blended scotches that wouldn't stand up to too much scrutiny in terms of their character and distinctiveness of flavour. And I think there are some single malts that, to be frank, don't stand up too well on the, on the same basis. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are some truly stunning blended Scotch whiskies, and some of the ones produced by people like Compass Box, you know, who try to push the boundaries as, as, as far as they can, sometimes a bit further than they should with yes. the SWA. Um, and there's a new company in Leith in Edinburgh called Woven who produced some brilliant, really interesting uh, blends. Um, Boutique Whiskey have got some great um, blends in their portfolio, as well as the, the great standards like Johnny Walker and Shivas Regal and blends like this. Yeah. Um, so there are as many interesting blends as there are single malts. And I think people who just refuse to drink blends or say, you know, I wouldn't use it to wash my car windscreen. Yeah. They're really, you know, they're not on the same page as, as the as the realities of the industry. You know, how much is that is uh, down to? Uh, you do touch on it in the book as well. Down to mistrust of blenders, uh, and maybe some of this comes from the Patterson and the Kid cases that happened in the late eighteen well, hundreds. How much of it is down to that? Yeah. So, so I, I, in the Johnny Walker book, I talk about um, the issue of adulteration. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean adulteration of whiskey. I mean the whole issue around adulteration of other food products, milk, butter, yeah. margarine, in in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Um, and, and that did, I think, um, you know, lead to a questioning very publicly of, of what the grocer yeah. did. And what grocers did traditionally was blend things. That was what yeah. being a grocer was one of the principal skills of being a grocer, whether you were blending tea or blending whiskey, whatever it, whatever it might be. Yeah. So certainly in the 19th century, there was a sense that blending was somehow adulterating a product. But if you think um, that's a long time ago, you know? yeah, I mean, I know people is. have long memories, but it's a long time ago. And if you think today, no one questions the fact that champagne is blended. No one or tea, or coffee, or teas, or coffee, or olive oil. Yeah, um, you know, all of these things are blended, and um, you rarely find people. I mean, there are a few tea snobs, you know, and there are a few coffee snobs who just want single estate teas and all of this stuff. But but blending has its place, and of course, it produces unique products. Yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 actually, if you think you're talking about innovation and cask finishes, well, you can innovate a lot more with blending. The, sure. the, the just you permutations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maths determines that. Uh, yeah. I have a quick question here from uh, Whiskey Lover Society. How do you manage to still have more than 40% ABV after 81 years in my cask? Hey, you ask them, it's 41.6% ABV. You better go and ask them about that. I was just quite remarkable. That's a very close call, yeah. 
very close. Uh, I, I found one thing um, quite interesting, and I, I, I kind of think it's probably more relevant in, in England and possibly in the UK, where society is more class-driven. Um, the, the kind of link between connoisseurship, aficionado, and class. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think... Um, it, it... <laughs> I mean, the basic point, I suppose, uh, Segas, is that um, connoisseurship requires surplus disposable income to indulge in whatever it is that you want to be a connoisseur of, yeah. whether whether it's whiskey or wine um, or books uh, or sports cars, uh, you know, you you name it. Connoisseurship is all about being able to spend. Um, indulgent money if you will on things that you don't need and that 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 obviously is something that um a large proportion of the population of any uh any country find will find quite difficult to do it's a bit it's a bit different i would suggest uh in some some european wine cultures where wine is is truly democratized and and you know more accessible and people will spend a bit more money on that Sure. But certainly, I think in in the UK um, and I think in the United States, probably even more so in the United States, actually, connoisseurship comes with a price tag, and that price tag is ultimately going to take you back into the class structure of whichever society you're in. Yeah. Um, what are the uh, points about collecting that I found interesting? I'm trying to find it here now. Was um, Firstly, the psychology of, of collecting, which you, you you introduce and you mentioned Freud, some sexual references, which of yeah, course yeah. Freud would would come back to, but also um, the sense of being in control of, of collecting. Um, how do marketers play to this kind con- uh, collecting and collectability side of things? Well, I think in different ways, but obviously. Um, it, it- you know, you, you have to look at McAllen to see how they have played the the trump card on collecting. And um, McAllen sort of dominates the world of collecting. It dominates the world of wh- whiskey auctions. And strangely enough, you know, coming up um, not far behind McAllen, of course, are some of the more desirable Japanese whiskies. Sure. Which again, no one would have thought about maybe even five, let alone ten years, ten years ago. Yeah. So it's um it's it's partly about having a reputation, um, and then it's it's partly about have just having a pipeline of these collectible items and being able to put them out there without ending up on the back pages of the Radio Times with the plates and and the toy cars and all of that stuff, and certainly so far. Um, so, so so far, brands like McAllen have managed to do that. Very, yeah. very, very, very determinedly and very strategically. Well, you, you've been you've been spotted here, Laura Hemi from uh, Rowan Co. I'm sure you know her. <laughs> Not a most lonely district. So she does more than doing permits. So she says. But uh, 
Sorry, uh, sorry, Laura, I apologize for that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Laura. It's great to have you on. She's doing a fantastic job there. Actually, I wanted to ask you, you would have been, of course, there when um, Diageo bought over um, Bushmills. Yeah. Was it yeah. 2000? And then let it go. Was it 2014 they, they sold it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 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 What was that? Uh, it's a question I get asked often. What, what was the reason they, they moved in and then moved out? Well, I, I, was, I'm not, I was not a party to the strategic uh, thinking on that, so I can only tell, tell you how I saw it. And, and, and I think um, the reason for getting in was that they wanted to have a footprint in Irish whiskey. Yeah. And Bushmills, with its both blends and single malts, was, I think, something that they felt they understood in that respect. Um, the reason that they got out, um, I always understood, was principally because they had an offer that they couldn't refuse, um, okay. which, as you know, involved Diageo getting something back in the tequila line of things as, as well as losing Bushmills. Yeah. And I think also it always felt as, as though – to me at least, as, as though the company didn't quite know what to do with Bushmills or it wasn't quite prepared to invest what it needed to in order to achieve what it thought it was it could do with, with Bushmills. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I wasn't surprised to see Diageo get get back into the Irish whiskey category, and I was involved in some of that with, with, with the early stuff on uh, Rowan Co., yeah. You know, and I was delighted that not only did they go back in with a with a brand, but they went in with a with a a will to um to build a, the distillery that Laura's now at. In fact, I was I was very vocal in saying that they really had to do that if they wanted to be credible in the world of Irish whiskey. Yeah, no, it's great that they they did a fantastic job down there. Uh, one question again in here from um, and this is probably an investment question. Do you think that McCann will still have the market share in the next five years, in regards to investment? Oh well, I mean, who knows? The, the the investment the investment market is so um, crazy in 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 some respects. I mean, I, I think it it might not have the same share, but I think it will have the same dominance. If if you understand what I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously there are more brands coming in there, and some of these new whiskies that apparently are are collectible, like Daft Mill, which we talked about earlier. But yeah. I think it it'll be a long time before McAllen goes away. Not least. Because so many people have got so much money invested in it. I mean, it's a huge bubble, you know? Yeah. It's a huge bubble. They well, mentioned Springbank. Spring yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't been able to buy a bottle of Springbank to drink for, for I don't know how long. So, which well, I, I think they're it's one of my favorite whiskies, really. But, um, yeah, very hard to get their 12 year old own barley it, it, one. It's, and, it's, yeah. it's just impossible to get any Springbank at the moment. But again, yeah. I'm sure they're struggling as much as everyone else with all of these supply issues. You know. Yeah. Uh, one thing we did, uh, or we do share in common, uh, I think at least from the tone that it comes across in the, is the, um, if you like, the disdain for cask investment schemes or, or casks as a means of investment, especially by brokers. Uh, is that something that's very prevalent now in Scotland as well? Well, it's, I mean, it is. I, I wrote an article um for a blog recently about cask investment schemes in the late 1960s and early 1970s, which were Scotch whiskey investment schemes being run in the United States and in the UK. Yeah. And if you look, if you look at the press advertisements and the claims that were being made, 
way back, um, what's that, 40, 60 years ago, yeah. uh, six, six, 50 or 60 years ago, they are almost identical to the claims that are being made in all the online adverts that you see in your social media feeds now. You know, preposterous claims um, about the amount of returns that can be gained on some of these things. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I think, I mean, I've got a cask sitting in a warehouse somewhere, which I've just bought for fun. Yeah. And, and for, oh, for there's a difference buying it yeah, before yeah, yeah. and as so opposed to. Clear, you know, you can, you can buy a cask and with, with friends and mates, and it's just a fun thing to do if you can afford it, if you're privileged enough to be able to afford it. Yeah. But, but these investment schemes, you know, if you want to invest in whiskey, Buy shares in Diageo. Buy shares in Pernod Ricard. You know, that's that's how you're going to make money out. I mean, if you've looked at the share price of Diageo over the past couple of years, I mean, that's whiskey investment. Why anyone would want to get involved in one of these schemes where you don't have the fun of owning your own cask and bottling it and putting a label on it and all of that stuff. It's just crazy. It's just yeah. crazy. Oh, there's a broker taking. But was there one of those cases in the late uh, 1900s where one of the investment schemes was double selling casks, selling the same cask twice? What other thing? I think I think you might I think you might find that's something that hasn't gone away. You know, right? Okay, yeah. Or selling no cask three times would be selling no cask. Well, I think many, it's, very often it's a way of doing business for, for for even some of the more legitimate traders that they don't own the casks when they sell them. They'll go out and buy them once they've sold them. You know? Yeah, that's a danger. I mean, really, well. it's 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 just not something it's worthwhile putting your money into. Yeah, I don't think um, it's probably as prevalent in Scotland because you haven't had the sudden spurt of growth that we've had here. Like, like I said, from you know forty distilleries now, from a couple in twenty years mm -hmm. or so. So uh, it's really something that people are entering the market as an investment. And you do talk about the difference between speculators and collectors. Uh, yes, I mean it's it's a bit hard actually because. All all collectors will buy and sell. That's part of the collecting world. You know, I mean, that always has been. Um, but it does seem to me, if you look, if you look at people, um, I mean, you'd never get the data from a from a whiskey auction. But if you could analyze people who were buying stuff, particularly on the secondary market, I do think you have collectors who are going to buy stuff and never open it and never sell it, or, or they might just sell it in 30 years' time when they get bored with it or something. But their 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 ambition is to have this stuff on their shelf. Yeah. You know, and to know that they've got it and someone else hasn't, which is one well, of the Well, I think it's uh, partly the hunt for bottles as well. Exactly. You know? exactly. exactly. I mean, there's a few here that uh, I won't be parting with no matter what. Yeah. But the enjoyment of actually seeking for them. And, and I talk about that in the book. And, and yeah. Talk about this wonderful essay written in in the uh, early twentieth century by a book collector. Yes, I must get that book. I yeah, saw that. Just, yeah, it's delightful. It's one of the most delightful reads, and it's not long. It's only about ten pages or something, but highly recommended. Yeah. So, so there are those sort of collectors, um, and then there are certainly people who are just turning a buck. You know, because you see all of these limited editions, so called limited editions, appearing on the auction sites the next month. Yeah. So some people are in it just to try and make a fiver, you know, or something, which is pretty, well, pretty. Well, it's a, it's, it's a return. <laughs> it's a return. But, you know, really, I, I don't know. Yeah. 
And then some people are in there to hold for five years or 10 years, and then they'll sell and they think get the, get the big bucks. And they, these are the speculators. Yeah. <clears throat> and I do think a lot of that secondary market really is driven by speculation rather than co- collectation. There's no such word. Um, and that's just because increasingly I think these these limited editions aren't really collectible. Yeah. You know, they don't, there's something about, something has to be really special well, to be collectible. Well, you know this, uh, the, the Game of Thrones collection, for example. Yes. That came, I mean, secondary market. Me, I may add. <laughs> that wasn't your hand in that at all, no? You're washing your hands. <laughs> but I mean, there's an example of a limited edition that's now available for less than they came out at. Uh, and and it's still available. I mean, it's still available yeah. it's still in retail everywhere, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 a pretty good example. But it's not the only one. I mean, and, yeah. and goodness me, I wouldn't blame Diageo for what they did there because one one of the one of the pieces of thinking behind that was to actually try and reach new new demographic um, yeah. with their brands, which I happen to, happen to know from stuff that I saw that they certainly had remarkably so. Yeah, and that's growing the category, so that's all for the good, for everyone's good. Well, one of the things that I liked in the book is that you demystify some of the romantic notions that there are about the production of whiskey and, you know, where the whiskey is stored, where the grain comes from. But, but one element that I, I didn't realize, actually, and, and uh, was that floor malting. Uh, you know, there aren't many floor malters out there, and the ones that are there are largely for for show, but I, I never realized there was the um that's where the monkey's shoulder expression came from when from sifting the the barley well yes a, a, apparently i mean i'm not sure that many people knew that it came from there until william grant's released monkey shoulder and told that story um, right and but, but and, and supposedly it was it was a phrase used by guys that worked on on the floors you know yeah. but, but certainly um it's strange that even yet you will see on some uh, single malt distillery websites pictures of guys on floor maltings when when they don't even have a floor malting of any size or description, yeah. and somehow somehow paint it as being romantic. Everyone that I've ever spoken to who worked on a floor malting told me it was the worst job <laughs> you could ever do. And not well, the just, dust, yeah, the dust. So it wasn't just a repetitive strain industry uh, injury, which is the monkey yeah. shoulder. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was the dust, um, which of course had came with a whole range of health hazards, which is one one of the reasons why floor maltings, you know, went. Yeah, another and, thing that of course, they were they were hugely unreliable in terms of producing consistent malting quality. Well, that totally makes sense. Is that you know you can't get the same level of consistency manually doing something like that, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and much more prone to, to climatic conditions, I imagine. What do you make of the uh, godlike status that master distillers have now? You know, well, you know, cruising around the world. You know, I've got to be careful what I say now. That I know Laura, Laura's. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I can't cause any more offence. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a certain. I mean, it's changing a bit actually, but I think there was a certain. Um, certainly, maybe ten years ago. Yeah. You know, there were a group of guys who'd been around for, and they're all blokes, of course, who'd been around for a long time, and they were in this sort of caravan of 
whiskey festivals and uh, product launches all around the world. And, and, and frankly, it always seemed to me they were a bit like a group of um, superannuated musical artists going around and doing their stuff and telling their rather unpleasant risque jokes and things like this um, to increasingly unamused audiences. I think now, I mean, obviously, we haven't really had whiskey festivals for a couple of years, but I think now the general level of audience at events like that expects something more. Uh, <laughs> something I can't comment. We didn't say that. We didn't say that. No. Uh, some, something more than that sort of presentation. And, uh, and of course, now you have a much more diverse group of people who are talking to you about, about whiskey as well, which is all, all for the better. You know. Well, let's talk about the diverse nature of conversation that comes in and, and obviously hugely influenced by the the internet now. Uh, what's your take on all the information that's coming up over the internet now? Obviously, we had we've had books, we've had magazines, we've had uh, other methods, uh, opening up of distilleries, tours, and distilleries being far more open now about what they're producing and how they're producing it. Um, but the internet has really changed things massively, you know, and, and even in the last. Five years, I can say the number must have quadrupled at least. But you have the old mainstays with uh, malt maniacs, whiskey fun. You know, you had some of the blogs on the the whiskey exchange and on a few other sites as well. But but now everybody's uh, an expert, or everybody has an opinion anyway. That's for sure. Mm. Yes, they do, don't they? I mean, uh, you know, it's um, it's it's not for me to say that people shouldn't have opinions, but. Um, I just wonder sometimes if the world needs so many podcasts of, again, mostly men sitting down in their um, dens, you know, um, trying to describe what these different whiskies taste like. I mean, you know, the Internet's a good force for good. It's a force for bad. And I I think, you know, um, Whiskey Base, which is this huge website of tasting notes, I mean, I think that's a great thing to have. That, that I think, is a, a wonderful resource you know if you really want to know what people think about a whiskey go and look at whiskey base yeah um you know and you get fairly i mean they're always sort of crazy extreme comments but you get people who are really just trying to say this is what i thought of this whiskey i really liked it because x y and z and that that i think is 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 great but but honestly I'm, i'm not sure even possibly a bit like us, I'm not sure who sits up watching two sad blokes talking about whiskey at eight o'clock. At night. Speak for yourself, but yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah I mean, I do, like I think we said earlier, the one thing I don't like is that you do get a lot of, um, you know, you do get bullying behaviour and and shouty bullying behaviour on some of these websites and conversational sites and things, which which I bore. I mean, I think that's just so, so boorish, you know? Yeah. The, um, the ability to stay independent is a, is a difficult thing. And I'm sure it's actually, even from your point of view, you, you can't easily go and say Johnny Walker, red label is rubbish or, you know, you can't lambast something easily, but what do you, um, what do you make of, brands and magazines and and sometimes you get books written about particular um about particular distilleries you know how do you recognize you are getting an objective view of something well how 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 do you ever recognize that 
I mean, yeah. that 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 was um, that was one of the concerns um, writing the, the the Johnny Walker book. Sure, uh, I'm sure it was. Yeah, the you know this isn't a brand book that just talks about how great the brand is and has a photograph of the chairman with his board of directors in the final chapter. So there's none none of that, yeah. and it is um, just for the just for the record, and rather to the to the surprise of the publishers it is meticulously footnoted so wow. <laughs> i didn't realize they were getting all of those footnotes in it and, and that was just to try and try and demonstrate it was objective a real o- o- open account yeah. but it is um it is hard sometimes to ensure that and, and i mean you know if a brand if a brand produces something as a piece of pr yeah purely then it's just going to be talking the brand story Yeah, but I think brands are very aware of that now. You know, brands are, I mean, I I see it even in our publication, that brands are very aware that over-talking a brand or doing something that's clearly PR is is a negative connotation with it now. Well, it can be, but that's why they try and talk so much through the mouths of influencers. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is which is a whole different subject, and we certainly haven't got time to get into that. But no. um, you know, because because this whole world of whiskey influencers, um, you know, they they are given information and they transmit information, and they're yeah. given information with inducements of bottles and trips or whatever it might be to help persuade them to transmit that information. There's no critical thought in the world of whiskey influencers. And as I read in an article in the Spectator magazine just before Christmas, without criticism, there is only advertising. Yeah. Without criticism, there is only advertising. So that's what you get from whiskey influencers, no matter how much they might try and make you jealous of wherever it is they've been or where they're going and all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, We were talking about the the marketing side of things as well. Uh, A quote I did enjoy from the book is – New ventures turn 150 years of convention on its head and persuade consumers that drinking three-year-old is really what aficionados should be doing. Yeah, well. uh, is that as a result of the, the pressure, obviously, to turn out something fresh and new and get it going? Yeah, of course it is. That's back to that point around in, in you know, in, everyone's got investors. Everyone, um, everyone needs to turn some money on, on their whiskey. And, you know, if if when I had been in marketing, when I was in marketing at Diageo, if I had managed to sell a three-year-old single malt for sixty pounds or something, <laughs> I, I would have got a big bonus. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's a commercially driven thing, and and you know it's uh, and it may sound cynical. I love whiskey. I love the whiskey. Oh, it comes industry. through. Yeah. I love the people. You know, for all their idiosyncrasies, I love it. But you do have to be realistic about it, and that's what I've tried to be all the way through the book. Yeah, and, and actually, you've done that really well and captured without being critical. You know, you haven't been damning of those that aren't, but you've oh, highlighted the points that such and such is perhaps marketing driven. Um, what are what are the things out there in the future that uh, excite you about the whiskey uh, the whiskey industry and, and perhaps maybe things you've heard about the Irish whiskey industry well I mean I think think the um, 
I think for those people who seriously want to do new things, by which I don't mean put whiskey in another bloody cask, yeah, but I mean really seriously try and look at parts of the production process that will produce different and distinctive styles of whiskey, either either to be consumed as single whiskies or to be blended, however it is. I think that's where a lot of the um, excitement uh, resides. I, I, I really do. And I know a lot of people are doing it. I mean, I, and it's not just the small guys that are doing it. I can tell you the big guys are looking at all of this um, as, as seriously as, as, as the small guys. And in fact, the bigger guys have been looking at it for donkey's years. Yeah, I think um, there's always that misperception that, you know, it's only the the newer entrants and the smaller players that are innovators. But it, yeah, yeah. I, I would say, it's, in fact, it'd be quite the opposite, perhaps. Well, you know, I used to say that there, there probably isn't an, any experiment that people like Diageo haven't already done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, they've, they've got almost 100 years of science behind them, you know? Yeah. Uh, for you, then, what's the future in terms of uh, what you're planning to do? You've two successful books there published. Uh, are you looking at a third? Is this something you're going to pursue? Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I'm... I'm looking at a number of things at the moment um obviously the, the continued pandemic has made it a bit a bit of a strange time to leave a business and try and sort of start a as a, a second or third third career i suppose but i'm doing i'm doing some writing and i have two or three different book projects which i'm trying to put together what one is really very historically focused lots of research um which means it'll probably never never get written and then a couple of more general general topics um, which I want to explore, which, which which actually expand out a little from just whiskey and spirits into more general areas of interest as well. But um, that's work to be done on book proposals and trying to find publishers, which isn't isn't that easy. Yeah, I mean, being a historian, obviously, you bring a different skill set to to writing, you, and the research that you do is probably. Not probably. It's more thorough than it would be. I presume you're not going to Google and doing searches and then just uh, regurgitating information, which you do. Uh, of course, online you see a lot of that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pretend you didn't even say that. Just, yeah. just, just, just look at when you get the Johnny Walker book, just look at the footnotes. There's no Google in there, I can tell you. That's archive research. And the, the interesting thing is, in the same way, in a sense, that there's so much to be unlocked, I think, about whiskey through proper innovation and, and yeah. you know, the innovation that takes time. So there's so much to be unlocked about the history of whiskey, both Scotland, Ireland, North America, um, because these archives have really never been looked at. You know, it, whiskey has been served very poorly by, mm -hmm. by historians, it has to be said, for the most part, um, yeah. as I sort of discuss in my book. And And the thing about history is that it, you need to understand history. You need to understand where you've been to understand where you're going. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think history is so valuable uh, in 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 terms of that in in the spirits industry. Yeah. Oh, well, here, here. Look, I mean, the book. I say, I, I really enjoy the book. Obviously, they can purchase it anywhere. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, there were some notes I made. Um, you know, it, it's clear. It's concise. It gets to the point. It's jargon free. It's it's very clear. It covers such a broad range, and without uh, seeming disingenuous, it's actually 
very poetically written as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted to maybe close out on a on a section that I did highlight that I thought was was quite poetic. And yeah, nobody's going to have to buy the book now if I keep on reading out bits of quotes. But I, I did want to end it on this note because I I didn't think it was really eloquently written, and it didn't have to be. You know, but it, it just makes it so much more of a pleasure to read. But there's something about words and whiskey. Think about all these words crammed in very small print around a flavor wheel. Each a whiskey word to provoke a memory of a place, a person or a thing. Each single whiskey word, the mother or father of many others. Words tumbling like a small highland spring that ends up as a wide meandering river heading to the ocean an ocean of words and so on. So beautifully written. I mean, that could be, a, you know, so congratulations on putting together both fantastic subject matter, beautifully illustrated, beautifully written. And, you know, uh, I wish you the best of luck now with all the rest of your, your writings, but you'll be doing them well to top this one now, I think. Uh, well, listen, that's, really, that's really kind. Um, no, it's genuine. It's genuine. And, I'll, and I'll say I'll say something else actually, if I may. It's yeah. quite interesting having something you've written read back to you. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I hope it's not like uh, listening to your own voice again. No, it's not. It's not as bad as that. I hate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Nick. Thank you so much for everything you've done, and thank you for the help you've given me in working on another article. So, um, wish you the best of luck. Uh, I think you know it's great to have a third career, and you're playing a great job at it and uh, I hope we'll get to meet sometime soon we will thank you so much for having me it's been, no, really it's been a real a real pleasure a really great insight so thank you okay thanks good night well thanks to Nick there for joining us I, I love having a, an insight from somebody that really knows what they're talking about and and not being afraid to, to speak it either so thank you for your great questions thank you for joining us uh we're glad to be back. We're going to be regularly back and uh, hopefully bring you some interesting topics that you'll enjoy. So good night. God bless. Thank you very much. And please do support the channel if you're interested in and have enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and we'll have lots more of interesting things to come. Good night. Sláinte.